Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Cray Bolger here with Michael Pratz this morning. Hey Cray. So we're discussing an article that I think both of us got excited about because I think neck fash is fun and it's kind of one of those sexy emergency medicine diagnoses where you get to run to the operating room maybe. A lot of times we end up having to do more advanced time delaying imaging because the patient presentation isn't necessarily convincing and so can point of care ultrasound expedite this time sensitive diagnosis. So this study was the relationship between fluid accumulation and ultrasonography and the diagnosis and prognosis of patients with necrotizing fasciitis. Essentially, can ultrasound solve all of your neck fascia problems? So, as we know, neck fascia is a serious time-sensitive diagnosis. The earlier, the better as far as um, debriding tissue, preventing spread of infection, preventing spread of the necrotizing bacteria. The earlier we can get the right antibiotics on board, we can neutralize toxins and help our patient lose less tissue. Often we have to depend on either our physical exam, um, which our consultants may or may not rely on, a CT scan, or honestly an MRI. And so those are take time. Um, they can take hours to many, many more hours um, to get done and read. And that's a lot of tissue loss for our patients. So people have been talking about using ultrasound for a while for this. And I think a lot of us feel comfortable, but maybe in recent years have had some more questions about the utility of ultrasound um, in the diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis. There is the STAFF protocol looking at soft tissue, air, and fascial-free fluid um, to help you remember the soft tissue findings um, on ultrasound. However, we don't know how accurate this is. Um, Sensitivities and specificities haven't been done on this uh, patient population for quite a while, and so this study is potentially promising for that. So they tackled the question, how accurate are some of these ultrasound findings for the diagnosis of neck fash. And particularly, they focused in on the finding of fluid along the deep fascial plane. And they even wanted to look at how much fluid there is specific for necrotizing fasciitis or accurate for ruling it out. They also wanted to see, does this correlate with the prognosis of these patients? Do, does having free fluid on ultrasound portend a negative outcome? So how did they do this? Well, this was a single academic center in Taiwan. They included any adult with suspected necrotizing fasciitis of the limbs. You had it on your chest, you had it on your abdomen, too bad, can't be in this study. They excluded people that had also received antibiotics or any prior debridement, and anyone that had bilateral signs of fascial fluid accumulation. That's a key point there. It's always useful to check the contralateral unaffected limb to help confirm some of your sonographic findings. Also, this was a convenience population. They only enrolled people that were there from 7 a.m. to midnight. This was retrospective. So this was a retrospective convenience cohort. Patients that had suspected neck fash based on their symptoms and their exam All patients received ultrasonography within one hour of arrival to the emergency department. And this is what they looked for on their ultrasound. Irregular or thickened fascia, emphysema, fluid accumulation along the deep fascia, 
the depth of fluid, and they compared it to the contralateral side. Orthopedic surgery was consulted after they got all their labs and did the ultrasound, and they collected data until they were discharged from the hospital. The comparison, the reference standard here, was a diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis based on pathology. If the patient did not have surgery or they had negative pathology, they were put into the non-necrotizing fasciitis group. Who did these ultrasounds? Well, three pretty experienced emergency physicians. They all at least had an eight-hour basic and soft tissue ultrasound training prior to the study. Remember, for this study, you're going to be using your linear high-frequency probe to help you see those things in the superficial soft tissue. They did not specify a protocol here aside from the types of pathology they were looking for. So presumably, they kind of just lawnmowered over the area that they were concerned about they had 95 patients enrolled, which to me seems like a pretty significant number where your pre-test diagnosis is necrotizing fasciitis. Maybe their patient population is significantly different than ours, but that seems hefty. Um, Of that, 50% of these patients actually had confirmed necrotizing fasciitis, also seems like a fairly large number. That's scary. Yep. Um, About 27% of them, or excuse me, 28% of them were female. Um, the necrotizing fasciitis group, as we know, had more, was more likely to have diabetes, alcohol use, um, cirrhosis. They were sicker at baseline, and they stayed longer because they were sicker. Um, four of the patients died in the necrotizing fasciitis group. Two died in the non-necrotizing fasciitis group, um, which makes you wonder if maybe some of the diagnostics weren't quite Um, accurate as far as ruling in or out neck fash. So primary outcomes. They looked at um, a cutoff of two millimeters of fluid accumulation in the fascial planes. That with that there was a 75% sensitivity and a 70.2% specificity. Yeah, not such great numbers. Patients with necrotizing fasciitis who had fluid accumulation did have a longer stay 39-day average versus 23 days for non-patients without that fluid accumulation. They also had a longer length of stay than non-necrotizing fasciitis patients, 36 days compared to 8. In patients with neck fasci who had sonographic fascial free fluid, they did not have a statistically different number of operations. So even with or without fluid, if you got cut, you had the same number of debridements essentially. Other things, a small percentage had subcutaneous emphysema, which is really surprising to me. Three out of the 48, but all of the people with subcutaneous air did have necrotizing fasciitis. Um, Fluid accumulation was 100% sensitive for patients who required an amputation or died. That seems like a pretty big extrapolation of free fluid equals badness. Um, We know that there is free fluid in patients who don't have um, clinically significant uh, infections or infections at all, that free fluid is fairly nonspecific. Um, so correlating that with death or limb loss seems like a big jump. Yeah, this sounds like some data mining to me. Like they were kind of looking through the results. What can we say yeah, it's accurate for? Something. Right. So they just said, hey, it looks like everybody that had a really, really bad outcome had some free fluid. So they reanalyzed it for that and Turns out they all had some free fluid, so 100% sensitive. Yep. yep. Um, some other things that seem a little like I want this fluid to mean something. 
they tried to alter their cutoff numbers from the two millimeters down to one millimeter down to half a millimeter. Obviously, as you use less fluid, it becomes more um, sensitive. Um, if you use more fluid, it becomes more specific. So five millimeters of fluid, very specific for bad infection. Much more sensitive if you lose le use less fluid, which intuitively makes sense. I think what we're saying here is that it wasn't super sensitive. It wasn't super specific for necrotizing fasciitis, although they did see some prognostic help with this study in that those patients seem to stay in the hospital longer. That's pretty much it. Now, as far as limitations to this study, I think there's a lot of them that we encounter frequently here. This is a small study. These were pretty trained operators. This was retrospective. This was a convenient sample. And if you don't live in Taiwan, this may not be your type of patient population. Remember, it could be totally different bacteria that they're looking at, and maybe they produce less air or produce less fascial fluid. We don't know those types of things. Yeah, I was really surprised about the low number of free air. Um, one thing we were discussing when preparing this article was I used to get really excited every time I saw subcutaneous emphysema because I felt like we had kind of locked down the diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis. However, again, our population, which may be different than theirs, we have a lot of IV drug use and a lot of injections and a lot of foreign bodies. How sensitive does free air become in that patient population? Because there's a potential nidus for free air that is not secondary to the infection. And before I, if I saw subcutaneous free air, I was much more inclined to push the diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis, push my consultants harder, push my imaging potentially more rapidly. However, now we have a complex patient population who, again, with injections um, and skin popping and everything like that, they may have subcutaneous air that's not secondary to toxins from the bacteria. And so how can we use that finding, which in their, this patient population didn't even really exist, um, how can we use that finding to help us change the likelihood of diagnosis, change the course for our patients? Well, Craig, let me spin that around and point it towards you. How do you use ultrasound in a patient that you suspect you have necrotizing fasciitis? So I think one thing that if my pretest probability for my clinical exam, the patient's presentation is high, and then I see subcutaneous air, I actually will activate my consultants earlier. I remember a very specific case of a prisoner who clinically had um, Fourniers and did the ultrasound, confirmed subcutaneous free air. On physical exam, honestly, had no crepitus, which was fun when my consultant came down and said, but I don't feel crepitus. And I said, but I can show you the crepitus on ultrasound. And thankfully, once they um, looked at the images, the patient didn't get a CT, didn't get an MRI, and actually went to the OR for debridement and tissue confirmation. You know, and so I think that helps sometimes because our physical exam is very subjective and images, I think, are much more objective. Um, and I think that helps sometimes, especially at two in the morning when opening up an OR maybe doesn't sound the most appealing. What I'm hearing from you is that you really got to take into consideration your pretest probability in determining if ultrasound's going to help you out. If you have a pretty high pretest probability and then you see some of these findings on ultrasound, even though in this study they weren't super accurate, that may be just enough for you to take the next step. However, I think we both agree that in patients where you're kind of going back and forth, yeah, maybe it's just a cellulitis or an abscess, but they're a little sicker than usual 
you probably shouldn't use ultrasound to rule this out and you probably shouldn't use ultrasound to rule it in. So in a lot of those times, I totally agree with you, don't waste time before getting your consultants involved because we know that this is a time-sensitive diagnosis, but you sometimes are going to need to get further imaging, whether it be CT or MRI or maybe just uh, get someone else involved to take a look at the patient. Yeah, I think that's a key with all soft tissue, and it's something that I, I really try to emphasize when we're teaching learners is if you clinically were going to cut something, don't use ultrasound to convince you not to do that. Um, use it to identify landmarks, identify size of pocket, identify vasculature that you want to avoid. But if clinically they have an abscess, the studies show that like we, ultrasound shouldn't change that. Um, and I think that's hard. I also think when you just have a red swollen something and you're not sure what it is, edema looks like cellulitis and uh, looks like venous stasis, they all look very similar. Even DVTs can have subcutaneous edema. So that cobblestoning that we classically teach with cellulitis, you have to put the whole picture together. To use the words that I know a lot of us hate, you have to clinically correlate. That your sonographic images by themselves don't stand alone in this case. That subcutaneous edema could be a wide range of differentials and you shouldn't let that sway you one way or another. Great. Are you saying what I think you're saying? That you can't just use your ultrasound you actually have to be a doctor and look at the patient too yes i know the world just paused for a moment (laughs) all right well that's a lot to consider let me recap this study so we ended up seeing 95 patients in this retrospective taiwanese study of suspected necrotizing fasciitis they found I would say not the best sensitivities or specificity, and that's being generous. They were both in the 70s. They did also see that patients with necrotizing fasciitis and fluid accumulation did have longer length of stay compared to those without fluid accumulation, and of course they had longer lengths of stay compared to those without necrotizing fasciitis. Take-home points from this study, based on the very limited data that we have I think point-of-care ultrasound findings of necrotizing fasciitis are not sufficient to rule in or rule out this diagnosis. Sure, patients with necrotizing fasciitis and fascial fluid may have worse outcomes. Keep in mind that sonographic fluid along the fascial plane may be sensitive for severe disease, but we really need some more research before saying that definitively. Nevertheless, thank you so much to these authors for doing this wonderful study, and thanks to you for continuing to listen to our podcast. If you want to find out more, go to ultrasoundgel.org, or you can check out our Facebook page, or you can talk to us on Twitter. We would love to hear from you there. Until then, we will talk to you later. More. Just, just do what feels best, you know? <laughs>